Uh, it was a, a few weeks ago, uh, I had a conversation with my boys about eavesdropping uh, and, uh, t- you know, explaining what that, what that is. And say, you know, there's, there's times where, you know, you may come into a room or, or, or hear someone else's conversation and they don't realize that you're there and you shouldn't do that. And they're like, you know, what every kid asks. Why? You know, why should I not? Well, sometimes you know, they may say things differently if they knew that you were listening, or uh, sometimes it's, it's not intended for you to, uh, to hear, and they're like, but then why? Uh, you know, so all, so it's just, you know, that, that conversation goes, goes around and around, and I was thinking about that conversation with them, because I've also been talking with them about hypocrisy, uh, and uh, like to say, you know, don't do that, and then to go do it yourself, uh, and, and so I have to kind of coach them on that as well, but I feel like to a certain extent, what we're, what we're doing this morning, after I've told my sons not to, not to eavesdrop, what, what we have really in, in John 17, to a certain extent, is we have a, a, a divine permission to eavesdrop upon a prayer that God the Son offers up to God the Father. And this is a, this is a tremendous passage of, of Scripture, and I'm, I'm so very thankful that, that, that John's Gospel records it for us. The other uh, Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke, kind of don't uh, mention this prayer at all, but I'm, but I'm so thankful that, that John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, heard it and recorded it for us. Over the course of, of church history, this, this prayer has been very uh, influential uh, to, to many who have studied the Scriptures. Philip Melanchthon, one of the, the German theologians of the, the Reformation, uh, his final lecture before his death, uh, he said this about John 17. He says, There is no voice which has ever been heard, either in heaven or in earth, more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime than the prayer offered up by the Son uh, to God Himself. Another Scottish, uh, or another reformer, John Knox, he had this chapter read to him every day uh, during his, uh, his deathbed illness. I, w- I want to hear John 17. A.W. Pink says, In this wonderful prayer there is a solemnity an elevation of thought, a condensed power of expression, and a comprehensiveness of meaning which have affected the minds and drawn out the hearts of the most devoted of God's children to a degree that few portions of Scripture have done. So so this is one of those chapters that you could continue to, to come back to day in and day out for an extended period of time and continue to get more and more from it. Great Minds throughout church history have, have understood that and they have returned to it. Uh, and I love what another Puritan says. He says, Studying Christ stamps a heavenly glory upon the contemplating soul. Studying Christ stamps a heavenly glory upon the contemplating soul. And that's really what happens when we study John 17. Uh, we, we contemplate how God the Son is going to, to speak to and relate to God the Father. Uh, and there's there's so much for us to uh, to glean from this because again, oftentimes when when you're eavesdropping on a conversation, when somebody doesn't know that you're listening, they'll speak in in a way that's more candid. You you kind of get to see someone's heart uh, in an unguarded way when you're eavesdropping. Uh, and again, this is this is an inspired uh, permission to eavesdrop. 
But what we see is that the heart of Christ for the Father. So it's a profound, profound passage. And we've been making our way up to it. And this is, in one sense, the culmination of a much larger portion of Scripture. We've been working our way through the second half of John's Gospel. The first 12 chapters in in his gospel are known as the book of signs and they, they emphasize specific miracles that were chosen by the apostle uh, that, that he recorded the, the miracles that Christ performed because they portray and give us an understanding of salvation uh, and right along with those miracles uh, the apostle John also records uh, specific teachings of Christ that uh, help us to better understand the miracles so there's there's teaching and miracles in the first 12 chapters uh, that covers really the first uh, three years of Jesus's ministry and then in John chapter 13, uh, we hit the, the final night of Jesus's life here on the earth. Uh, and he's going to, to spend uh, an inordinate amount of time, John chapter uh, 13 through 17. This is just a couple of hours uh, with the disciples. Uh, we've been walking through uh, 13 through 16 the last couple of months. Uh, we have this, this scene of the, the, the Last Supper and then what is known as the Upper Room Discourse. And I know we're, we're here at the beginning of John 17, but if, if you have your Bible, turn over to the beginning of John chapter 13. And we won't read through all of this, but I would, I would draw your attention to some main points of what uh, Jesus has been telling his disciples and what he has been uh, teaching them and instructing them as, as he prepares them for his departure. He's going to let them know, hey, I'm, I'm going out from you, and you can't follow after me. And this is just world-shattering to them. But uh, in, in chapter 13, we have uh, the, the scene of the, the Last Supper and, and Jesus washing the disciples' feet. We have Judas Iscariot, who was uh, the one who would betray him, going out uh, from the, uh, the, the meal. Uh, and, and he's on his way to betray Jesus. And once he is gone, Jesus focuses his attention upon the other 11 disciples. And he's going to, to tell him all of his plans. And he's going to teach and instruct them. And he's going to, to begin the commands uh, in, after announcing his departure in chapter 13, verses 31 to 33. And then his first command to them in verses 34 and 35 says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And that, that simple command is also going to be repeated in chapter 15. Uh, so he, he tells them he's leaving. He says, you are to love one another. And then at the beginning of chapter 14, he says, Do not let your heart be troubled. He'll circle back around to that same command later on in chapter 14 and verse 27. And he tells them, uh, he, he instructs them to follow his commandments. Everything that I've taught you thus far, you are to obey. It's the scene in chapter 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. Verse 23, and Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our dwelling with him. So he, he, he instructs them to, to obey, to follow what he has in, commanded of them. He also promises to send them a helper. He says, he, he says I'm going, but I'm going to send you an advocate, uh, the, the Holy Spirit to lead you and guide you. And he, that, that takes place multiple times in, in those chapters. Chapter 15, he commands them to abide in him, remain in all that he has modeled for them, all that he has taught. He uh, expects them also to bear fruit. Chapter 15, verse 4. 
says, Abide in me, and I in you, and as the branch cannot bear fruit from itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither, you, uh, neither can you unless you abide in me. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So Jesus is going to to emphasize obedience, uh, abiding in him. There's this expectation of of spiritual fruit. But then he also says uh, in chapter 15, verse uh, 18, or verse 16, he, he says, I didn't, or you didn't choose me, I chose you. And I chose you for a reason. I'm going to send you out into the world. He says, I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would abide so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. That's sincere to go and bear fruit, to go out into the world. And then the next portion, he says, oh, and by the way, that, that world that I'm sending you out into, they're going to hate you. They're going to malign you. They're going to attack you. And they're going to hate you because it first they first hated me. Jesus is laying all of this out for them, and the disciples have questions kind of sprinkled along the way. He told them that the world would hate them to such an extent that they needed to be prepared to even be cast out of the synagogues. It's chased away from everybody that they know, chased out of their culture. But he's going to call them to bear witness about him. Chapter 15, verse 27. Verse 26, he promised to send the Spirit who would bear witness about Christ. And he says, and then verse 27, you will bear witness also because you have been with me from the beginning. So Jesus has has given all of these instructions uh, to the disciples and kind of painted a, a bleak picture. And then he ends chapter 16 with verse 33, which you're probably familiar with. These things I have spoken to you so that in me... You may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. So Jesus gave all of these instructions, told them what to expect, what to do. And now in chapter 17, Jesus is going to pray through all of those things. He's told them what's going to happen. Now he's going to take the time to pray about uh, for them uh, that they would obey and walk in all of the things that he just uh, taught them about. Uh, This chapter is known commonly as uh, the high priestly prayer. Uh, And uh, it's called that because we see Christ interceding and praying for his people. And it gives us a glimpse uh, of his prayer here on the earth, gives us a glimpse of what he is doing on our behalf even now. Because it says that he's seated at the right hand and he's always interceding for uh, his people, always interceding for us. This prayer is also known as the, the prayer of consecration. Because Jesus is, this is praying for his own consecration and the consecration of his people. That it would be, we would be set apart for uh, holy use and we would glorify the Father in all that we do. And Jesus was the model of what prayer is to, to look like. If you, if you look at the, the other three Gospels, especially the, the Gospel of Luke, uh, Luke spends a, a lot of time talking about the prayer life of Jesus. We see occasions in which Jesus uh, taught his disciples how to pray, most famously the, what's commonly known as the, the Lord's Prayer, right? Uh, but that's not how Jesus prays. Jesus doesn't need to pray uh, for the forgiveness of his own sin, right? Uh, and he's teaching and instructing us how we should pray, but Jesus prays the true Lord's Prayer uh, is here in John 17. 
Jesus teaches on prayer. He, uh, he spends entire nights in prayer just before he uh, chooses his disciples. There's lots of record of, of him going away to pray, but there's actually very few uh, examples that we have recorded of what he actually prayed. Uh, and John 17 is actually the longest recorded prayer of Jesus in the Bible. So this is where we see his heart uh, for us and his heart for God the Father. And uh, we're going to work our way through John 17. There's, there's three large sections to, to this prayer. In verses 1 through 5, Jesus, you could say he prays for himself. In verses 6 through 19, he prays for the disciples. He prays for the 11, those who were with him right then and there. And then in verses 20 to 26, he is going to, to pray for the church. He's going to pray for, for those extending beyond uh, those original 11. I want to read through uh, this entire prayer uh, and kind of get a lay of the land. And then we're going to look at verses 1 through 5 this morning. Beginning in verse 1, Jesus spoke these things. And lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having finished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. And now they have come to know that everything that you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me I have given to them. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those who have you, whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine. And I have been glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and, guarded, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled." But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also sent them into the world. 
For their sake I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, and they may be one, just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you. And these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and will make it known so that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. Just pause and, and pray. Holy Father, we thank you that you have recorded this prayer for our benefit and blessing. We pray that you would bless our study of it now, that you would lead us and guide us, help us to to grasp uh, the depths of all that is written uh, and recorded for us here. May it draw us near to you. May it make us more and more like our Savior, your Son. We pray in his name. Amen. That was a a lengthy prayer. But as Jesus is is praying to God the Father, especially in those first five verses, we see that he's he's praying in accordance with God's will. We're familiar with that that saying of, not my will be done, but thy will. That's what his prayer was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, As he taught the disciples to pray, Jesus taught us and instructed us to uh, uh, pray, Thy will be done, Thy kingdom come, right? Uh, And so he's going to be praying and modeling what that looks like. Uh, And as Jesus prays here, he's going to be praying in accordance with uh, what he knows uh, concerning the the, the plan and foreknowledge of God, God's overall plans uh, for redemption uh, and salvation. Uh, Jesus is going to pray according to God's will uh, and especially what would be accomplished uh, in his death. Uh, immediately after John 17, if you look over at John 18, I mean, this is, this is just moments before Jesus is going to be arrested in the garden. And, and all of the disciples that, that he just is praying for are going to abandon him and forsake him. Uh, and Jesus is going to, to spend the night standing before various uh, human authorities, and in the morning he's going to be crucified. Uh, we are on the, the eve of that. Uh, And Jesus spends this time praying uh, and uh, according to the eternal purposes of God the Father. And he has the the cross in mind uh, and he's going to be praying through and and showing us what the cross is going to accomplish, what God has planned and what is going to take place when Jesus goes to the cross. And so we we see Jesus praying for for three eternal purposes uh, that God uh, desires to be accomplished in Christ's sacrificial death on the cross. 
this is what will happen the next day as Jesus goes and dies. The first eternal purpose that we see here is really for the, the Son to glorify the Father. And in verse 1, it says, Jesus spoke these things, and speaking about what we kind of gave an overview of in chapters 13 through 16, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Now, in the first portion of John's gospel, over and over again, uh, there were instances when the disciples and even Jesus' mother were saying, like, hey, seize this moment and reveal yourself. Give, give yourself glory. And Jesus repeatedly said, no, no, now is not the time. My hour has not yet come. Uh, but then in chapter 12, when uh, the, Jews had set, the Jewish leaders had set their hearts to, to murder Christ, uh, and, and they, they set their hearts to put him to death for blasphemy, Jesus says, now, the time is, the time is now. The hour has come. It, it's no longer in the future. It's no longer a waiting time. Uh, it, the, time the hour has come. The hour, and that hour refers to that predetermined and foreordained time in which uh, Christ would be lifted up and when he would be crucified on the cross. And Jesus makes a, a simple petition here. He says, glorify your son. Now, and it's important just to, to, to contemplate that because nobody else could, could pray that. A normal human being, uh, it would be blasphemous for us to, to pray, God, give me some glory. Right? Isaiah says, uh, I am, or Isaiah 42.8 says, I am the Lord. This is my name. I am Yahweh. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Isaiah 48.11, for my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned? And my glory I will not give to another. Right? So, so Jesus is, is asking to, to share in the, the Father's glory. And so how can, how can a creature ask the Creator Give me some of your glory. Let me have some of that. And you give me glory, and then I'll turn around and give you glory. This would be a blasphemous prayer by anybody else. You don't share glory with God. But Jesus makes that exact request. And this is, in a subtle way, proves that he himself is God. That he is truly God and truly man. Uh, and it also demonstrates that even in his position of being truly God, his ultimate goal is to glorify God the Father. 1 Corinthians 15 puts it this way, uh, as it describes uh, God giving glory to the Son as Christ is, is crucified and lifted up, uh, and then Christ receives all glory, honor, and praise from uh, humanity. Uh, and when Christ returns, he'll put all of the creation under subjection under his feet, uh, and then uh, Christ turns around and gives that back to God the Father so that all things would be summed up and given to uh, God. That's what 1 Corinthians 15 verses 24 to 28 summarize. Uh, and that, that This vision of uh, the, the Father glorifying the Son and the Son turning around and glorifying the Father. And, and Christ knows the, the plan and the, the purpose of God and he's acting in submission to that plan and he's praying in accordance with God's plan. And he understands that the cross is going to be uh, not only the instrument of his death, but also of his glory. He's going to be lifted up on the cross and exalted for all eternity because he has died to save his people, died to save sinners. One pastor puts it this way, The cross displayed God's glory like no other event in history. 
revealing his righteousness, justice, and holiness in requiring the precious blood of his son, a lamb unblemished and spotless as a propitiation for his holy wrath against sin. At the same time, it dramatically demonstrates his grace and mercy and love in the sending of his only son to die for the sins of the utterly undeserving. The cross further displayed God's power as he defeated sin and death and Satan. And then finally, the cross made clear the wisdom of God's eternal plan of redemption, the wisdom from which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So the the crucifixion is going to to demonstrate the glory of Christ, and that's going to bring glory to God the Father uh, as well. Uh, And and this is the very first thing that Jesus is is praying for. He says, glorify me so that I can glorify you. And this really should influence the way that we think about and, and meditate upon the cross of Christ. The, the cross is about the glory of Christ and the glory of God the Father. And we, and we tend to, to skip right over that and immediately go to what the, the cross accomplishes, right? Our redemption, which is a, a good thing and a glorious thing, but, but we miss out on uh, the, the bigger picture of what God is doing. Uh, and we make the, the cross all about us, right? You're so vain, you probably think this gospel is about you, don't you, don't you? Right? And, and so you, you, need to, you need to broaden your, your horizon and your understanding and see what God is, is really striving to do and to accomplish. Yes, we have salvation in Christ, and that's going to be the next thing that, that Jesus is going to be praying uh, through in, in this prayer. But first, what does he begin with? The glory of God. We can't skip over that. We can't gloss over that. And all too often, uh, we, we emphasize our salvation and we, we act as if it's kind of one or the other. Well, we can emphasize the glory of God or our salvation. Uh, and it, by if we emphasize our salvation, we diminish the glory of God. Or if we, we emphasize the glory of God, we diminish salvation and, uh, and obedience. And so there, there's, a, there's a bigger connection between salvation and God's glory. Uh, the the Westminster Shorter uh, Catechism, which uh, a, a body of uh, English uh, theologians spent ten years crafting uh, and and debating about, the first question that they ask is, "What is the, the chief end of man?" Uh, and, and in the answer to that question, they put these two things together. The, their answer was, "Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever." Right? So, so we get to enjoy God and glorify Him. Now, th- those are not mutually exclusive. Those are actually must go hand in hand. Now, and living for God's glory brings the greatest blessings. It produces the deepest satisfaction and it leads to the most profound joy in life. And, and who do we see as the ultimate example of that? Christ. Right? Hebrews says that Jesus went to the cross joyfully joyfully went to the cross to obey, to give his life in accordance with God's will and to to give his life as a ransom for many. That living for God's glory is what is best because it ultimately accomplishes the greatest good. But the the opposite is also true. I would say that people are most miserable the least satisfied and they have the least joy and, the, and the, they experience the greatest disappointments when, when we are living for ourselves 
When we are living for our own glory, when we are living for our own desires, right? Because if you're living for your own desires and you don't get what you want, how do you feel? Miserable, angry, upset. Now you want revenge upon anybody who's withholding from you what you are so desperately wanting. But what we see should be our our greatest uh, ambition uh, is to, to live for God's glory. We see this in, in the heart of Christ in this prayer. We see it elsewhere in, in the scriptures as well. It, listen to, to the heart of, of Asaph, the, the psalmist, in, in Psalm 73. He describes the, his own experience of making God his, his focus. The beginning of the psalm is, is focused upon how, why are the wicked prospering, God? But, but he, over the course of the, the psalm, he, he reorients his heart and his mind and his focus off of his earthly circumstances and elevates his eyes to be focused upon God. He says this in Psalm 73, verses 25 to 28, Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my, my heart fail, but God is the rock of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed everyone who is unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have set the Lord Yahweh as my refuge, that I may recount all your works. This is that that focus that that we need to to grow and to develop. This was the, the focus of Christ upon the earth, and this should be our same focus. And this is Christ's first prayer as he is praying according to God's eternal plan. Then there's going to be a second prayer that he offers up in verses 2 and 3. A second eternal purpose in, in God the Father sending God the Son to the cross. The second purpose would be for the elect to receive eternal life. Verses 2 and 3, Jesus says, Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him that he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And so this uh, verse 2 begins with an even as. And so, so there's, a, there's a correlation between what is being said in uh, verse 1 uh, and with what is being said in verse 2. Sorry, guys, I'm having to adjust my... keep getting louder suddenly. So there's a correlation here in, in terms of that there's a pattern uh, that what, of what he's requesting in verse 2 is to, to follow a previous pattern. Or what he's requesting in verse 1. He said, hey, give, uh, glorify your son that the son may glorify you even as, and he's going to talk about something else that's already taken place. So give glory so that I can glorify you uh, according to this other pattern. But what is this other pattern? And, and what Jesus does is he points to uh, the Father giving him authority over all flesh. Uh, and God the Father had given authority to the Son in anticipation of his future obedience. This is talked about in John chapter 5. Uh, but, but Jesus is the recipient of all of this authority over humanity so that he can, he can do something. It's not just so he has this authority, but it's to a, a specific end. Namely, that he can give uh, eternal life to all those uh, whom God the Father has given to him. And, and this is uh, the, the eternal plan of redemption uh, that we see, and it's been seen throughout all of the, the scriptures, but specifically in John's gospel, it's a, it's a recurring theme. Uh, that, that God the Father has planned out in eternity past uh, 
salvation. And, and he has called and chosen a specific people. And then he sent God the Son into the world to live a perfect life and to die a sacrificial death and then to rise again. And Christ uh, is living and dying to save uh, those people whom God has, has chosen. Uh, and then the Spirit is going to be sent uh, to regenerate uh, all of the hearts of those whom the Father has chosen and the Son has died for. This is the eternal plan of God. And this group of people that God is, is working to save uh, in the Scripture, they're called the elect. And this is seen over and over again. If you kind of turn back in John's Gospel to John chapter 6. John 6, beginning of verse 35, as Jesus is speaking to people who, uh, who have seen and just eat, uh, eaten uh, a miraculous meal as he's fed the, the 5,000. Well, it was 5,000 men. It was probably closer to ten to 15,000 people overall. But chapter 6, verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen, and yet you do not believe. And then verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. So in essence, that, that they weren't believing. And Jesus is saying, well, everybody who's given to me by the Father will believe. Verse 39, as this is, now this is the will of him who sent me, that all of, that he has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Jesus doesn't lose anybody as, as any of those whom the Father has uh, given to him. Nobody gets dropped in the process. Right? They don't, there's no dropping of the baton. And so this is the emphasis here in John chapter 6. And then verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So nobody is, gets dropped being handed from the Father to the Son, and nobody sneaks in. Uh, no one has an end around or gets an advantage. Oh, I'll sneak past God the Father and I'll get to God the Son. Now that's not what takes place. If you jump over to John chapter 10, the same theme is going to be picked up in verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name. These bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them and they will never perish ever. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And I and the Father are one. And so th there's this, this pattern, of, and this uh, word is used over and over again of giving. And as we study the, the next portion of John 17, as you think back about what we read earlier, over and over again there's that emphasis upon those whom you have given to me. Right? The Father has entrusted people to the Son, and the, and the Son uh, is not going to, to lose them. He's going to, to live and die for them. So Jesus is saying, give me glory so that I can glorify you in the same way that you gave me authority to give eternal life to the elect. But what is meant by eternal life? Well, that's, that's defined in verse 3. Jesus himself gives us a definition. This is eternal life, that they may know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That, that's what eternal life consists of. It's a knowledge of God. God the Father and God the Son. But really, what kind of knowledge uh, is needed here? And the, the Greek would indicate that this is a, a continual, ever-growing knowledge. 
Now, there's a, there's a certain knowledge that can be gained from looking at a photograph of a person, right? You have uh, in your bulletin today, we had photographs of our ministry leaders. So to a certain extent, you now know who they are, right? But, but if that's the extent of your knowledge, if all that you know of them uh, is a little snapshot, do you really have knowledge or is that just like recognition? See, the kind of knowledge that leads to eternal life is not, oh, I have a, a brief snapshot of one uh, point of time, uh, true knowledge of God is going to be a, a video feed. It's going to be an ongoing relationship with God where it's, you're going to be continually growing uh, in knowledge and in relationship and obedience uh, to God the Father and God the Son. Bishop J.C. Ryle puts it this way. He says, of course, we must distinctly understand that mere head knowledge like that of the devil is not meant by our Lord in this verse. The knowledge he means is a knowledge which dwells in the heart as well as in the head and influences the life. A true saint is one who knows the Lord. To know God on the one hand, his holiness, his purity, his hatred of sin, and to know Christ on the other hand, his redemption, his mediatorial office, his love to sinners. These are the two grand foundations of saving religion. Now, we have to know and understand God the Father and God the Son. And, and how we relate to both of them, not just in a, a small snapshot, but an ongoing, ever-growing relationship. And Christ has been granted all authority so that he can give eternal life to those whom the Father has given to him. And so this, this question always comes up when we, as soon as we, we see that term, the elect, right? People begin to, to wrestle, get nervous. The, the, the feet begin to, to shake in the seats uh, and uh, the feet begin to, to tap because the, the question comes up, well, how do I know Who's a part of the elect? How do I know if the Father has given me to the Son in order to be saved? Uh, and that's not the question that we should ever seek to, to answer. That's, that's a, a secret will of God. And Jesus can speak with clarity to the Jews and say, you're not of my sheep. But no human being can do that because we don't have perfect knowledge. We don't know who the elect are. God the Father and God the Son do, but we don't know. What we are called to do uh, is to, to proclaim the gospel and see who responds. Uh, as one pastor and theologian put it, he says, We don't need to ascend up to heaven to search the roles of the eternal councils. All whom the Father has given to Christ shall come to Christ and not only receive him as priest, but give themselves up to be ruled uh, and quickened or made, uh, made alive by him. By such a receiving of Christ, we shall know whether we are of the number of those that are given to Christ. So you don't need to, to stress about, am I of the elect? What you need to stress about is, am I going to respond to the message about Jesus? What am I going to do with that message? That he has lived and died and risen again, and he lived and died and rose again to save uh, sinners. Do I see and understand my sin? Do I see and understand the holiness of Christ and that he gave his life up for me? Right? We sang about this earlier in that wonderful song, His Robes for Mine. A wonderful exchange. Uh, and, and so that, that exchange that takes place, if you trust in Christ, all of your sin is placed upon him and all of his righteousness is placed upon you. This is the transaction that takes place and you receive eternal life and you have an intimate knowledge of God the Father and God the Son. Uh, and Christ is calling all people everywhere to turn from their sins and look to him in faith. Uh, that, that's the message that we all must respond to. First and foremost, don't wrestle with, am I of the elect? Are you going to respond to that message? That's the question that you have the power to answer. 
How have you responded to that message of who Jesus is and what he has done? Have you rejected it and set it aside? Uh, Are you wrestling with it right now, which is a good thing? Wrestling with the truth is always a good thing. Or have you embraced it wholeheartedly? Right? Where are you in, that, uh, in those categories? And that is really going to reveal where you are in the eternal plan of God. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Now the introduction says, But as many as received him, speaking of Christ, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You haven't looked to Christ in faith today. I would urge you to do that. Don't don't let it uh, delay any longer. Trust in Him today. So Christ has prayed according to these eternal purposes of God. He began with uh, the, the, His desire to glorify the Father, and He moved on to the prayer for the elect to receive eternal life. But then there's a third eternal purpose on display here that Christ is going to pray through. And that's uh, for the Son to return to glory. And this is in verses 4 and 5. And we'll just walk through this quickly. Verses 4 and 5, it says, I glorified you on the earth, having finished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So Jesus, again, does something that only he can do. He affirms his perfect obedience to God. Nobody else can do that. He says, every single thing that you assigned me to do here on the earth, I have done it. Or he anticipates his obedience to the cross. He says, I'm I'm going to complete everything that you've told me to do. Nobody else can say that, but Jesus prays that here. And he anticipates uh, his own victory on the cross. Now, everything that he was commanded to do during his first coming, he has fulfilled. And so the the flow of thought here from verse 4 into verse 5 is that Jesus says, I've, I've glorified you, Father, through my obedience here on the earth, and now can you glorify me? Can you bring me back to heaven to be with you? Can you reestablish the glory that I had with you in eternity past? Uh, th- this is the, the prayer, and this is all uh, according to uh, the, the predetermined plan that, that God has had set out from the very beginning. And there's a, uh, this is, this is the, the longing that Jesus has to return to God the Father in, in heaven. There's a, there's a, a Welsh uh, word very specific for this kind of longing. I'm going to try to pronounce it. If you ever heard somebody speak Welsh, you're like, oh, I'm gonna, this is going to be funny. Uh, but, but I guess the, the word, it's hereith. Uh, and so the, the Oxford English Dictionary defines this as a deep longing for a person or thing which is absent or lost. It's, it's a yearning. It's a, it's a nostalgia. Or if you, some of you college students may have felt this uh, when you, if you came out of state or you're far from home, how do you feel? You are homesick. Right? That's, what, that's what Christ is feeling here. There's a, there's a homesickness that he longs to be back in heaven with uh, God the Father. And he's, he's praying to be restored to that position, which is, again, uh, that, that's a part of the eternal purpose and plan. Jesus was, was sent to the earth, with, uh, with a mission, right, uh, to to die for sinners and then to ascend again into heaven. Uh, that, that's, that's the mission that God has sent him to fulfill. And he's saying that basically, hey, this mission is going to be complete now, and do I get to come back home and to, to be restored to glory? This is what uh, he is uh, praying for and asking for. 
And, and you and I, again, we don't have the same type of a complete knowledge of God's will that Jesus had. None of us uh, can say, I've done every single thing that you've asked me to do. But we have all uh, have specific callings upon our, our lives. We talked about this a little bit uh, during the equipping hour today and one of the questions that was answered. But uh, God has works uh, that he has prepared uh, ahead of time that he wants us to walk in. What are those? I don't know. They're different for everybody. Uh, but some of that is we figure that out as we walk in obedience to his general principles of his word. Uh, and the specifics for us are going to be made evident as we see our giftings and our passions uh, made clear. But you follow God's revealed will, uh, and as you obey his revealed will of what he's commanded in the scriptures, you, and as you look backwards, you start to begin to see uh, his secret will as well. Of Oh, he wanted me to, to move to this city and to meet these people and to be involved here, and I can do this good for this person. I can marry this person and then have kids. And so like, there's a lot of things that God reveals as we walk in obedience to him. Uh, but may each of us strive to be able to say what Christ says in, here in verse 4. I have finished the work that you have given me to do. And so this is, we see these, these three eternal purposes of God the Father, and Jesus is aware of those. And this is, this is so instructive even for our own prayers, right? Jesus is echoing back to God the Father, God's own plans, God's own intentions. And, and he's, he's praying for God's will to be done in all of these things for God to be glorified, for uh, the elect, for the saints to receive eternal life, and then for himself to return uh, into to heaven and to be restored to glory. Uh, all of these things are already things that God has uh, expressed and made known. This is, this is my hope and this is my desire. Uh, and so, so it's instructive, this, this whole uh, chapter 17 is, is going to really teach us how to pray and how to consider the, the plans of God and the purposes of God, rather than just our own feelings and emotions. We can express those to God. And there's a time to just cry out to Him with raw emotion. He, he welcomes that and He desires that. But there's also a period of time in which we need to think about what is God wanting to take place here and now, and how do I pray and echo back to God His own uh, actions and attributes, His own plans and purposes. And again, putting this in, in the grand scheme of things, Jesus knows what's going to happen in the coming hours, right? Nothing is going to catch Jesus by surprise, right? Judas' betrayal, not a surprise. The surprise to all of the other disciples, right? His arrest by the, by the Romans uh, and the, the, temple, the Jewish temple guard. Surprise to the disciples, not a surprise to Jesus, right? And who's behind that arrest? Uh, chapter 13 talked about uh, Satan filling and leading Judas Iscariot. Jesus is aware that right now he's going to, to face the full onslaught of the powers of darkness coming against him. Uh, Satan is going to, to drive Jesus to the cross thinking that will derail the plan and, the, and the, the mission of God, but it's actually going to fulfill it. So Jesus knows everything that is going to take place. It would be really, really easy for him to not pray. It would be really easy for you. Like, I know how this is going to end. I don't need to spend any time in prayer. But, but that's not what Jesus does. If, if God the Son said, this is so important, I know what's going to happen, but I'm still, I need to pray about this. I need to echo back to God, His own plans and His own purposes. For my soul, 
for the glory of God, for all of these things. How much more, if God the Son needed to pray in that way, knowing the end and having all of the tools, all of those things, how much more do you and I need to pray on a regular basis? And, and we need to be instructed in our prayers. We need to pray as Jesus prayed in the circumstances and content in so many things. Even as uh, Tim has been teaching through Ephesians 6 to put on the whole armor of God. We need to be in prayer. And we need to be instructed by this chapter about how we pray for God's glory, for the the salvation of the saints, uh, and for for Christ to rule and reign in heaven. 